Welcome to a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's history time. Come on, tell your friends. We'll visit New Zealand's ancient lands with Jamie the host and Dr. Valetta Gillibit the historian. Our fun will never end because it's history time. It's time for a history with Dr. Gillibit Gillibit. Um, Morena to you. Morena, Jamie. And um, welcome to the show. Um, right, last week we talked about Etty Rout, the New Zealand same-sex war hero, same-sex war hero, uh, and sadly believer in eugenics. I'll never let that go. Uh, um, and I guess this week we're going to kind of talk about uh, a little bit about her legacy uh, uh, and the fighting for safe sex in Aotearoa and, you know, how we kind of buried venereal diseases, as they were called back then, uh, in, in, into the background and the shame that was brought, on, brought through that, um, you know, a, a, how it became more of a moral issue than a health issue. So I guess we'll have to start back uh, with Etty Route. Uh, and even a little bit earlier than that, in the 1800s, with things like the Contagious Diseases Act. Truly, Jamie. Uh, the Contagious Diseases Act, um, more than many other pieces of legislation, really uh, reflects, firstly, the gendered nature of um, how people viewed venereal disease in a moral framework, but also how much uh, shame and embarrassment and outright denial was associated with it as well. So. Basically, uh, the Contagious Diseases Act was uh, brought about to combat venereal disease, primarily through prostitution. It wasn't considered uh, an issue, a health issue that could enter into godly marriages, for example. Mm. Um, so uh, we followed Britain in introducing this legislation in 1869, um, under which suspected prostitutes, not confirmed, but merely suspected prostitutes, oh could be forcibly inspected for venereal disease and even locked up for compulsory treatment. Uh, there is a fairly sound argument that this was used more to target, say, women that were suspected of being precocious or involved in some kind of immoral activity to kind of prescribe their behaviour. If women were seen hanging about on the street, you know, out in public, away from their homes, then they could potentially uh, face sanctions and, you know, some pretty... Um, horrible uh, interventions into their bodies. So, uh, yeah, that, that was it. And, of course, uh, suspected prostitutes, not their suspected clients. Yes, yes, that's men, right. <laughs> men were completely free in this situation to do as they pleased. It was uh, only suspect, suspected sex workers that were targeted. And so, interestingly, although um, the first wave feminist movement was extremely Christian and extremely home and family oriented, they... Um, took very seriously the double standard that was being implied here. That, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they didn't approve of prostitution, but they approved even less of the sexual double standard implied by only suspected sex workers being targeted. So, yeah, it was repealed in 1910, thankfully, yeah. but um, uh, arguably, statistically, it wasn't uh, enforced very often. Um, so that's great, but it still stuck around on the law books for a good uh, 40 years. So a, a good indication of how it was back then. <laughs> Did it explicitly say in the act, woman? Yes, yes. Oh. Well, suspected prostitutes by, at that stage could only be women. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, well, according to lawmakers, you know, at least by the very probably quite limited knowledge, yeah, um, yeah only women. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's interesting. Obviously, out there, it is in the government's mind, at least, um, to be fighting against VD. 
and the dangers of VD. But, you know, was the public very educated? Because, of course, we're talking about Eti Rao, um, you've got soldiers heading off to war fight wars in foreign countries, and they're obviously having unsafe sex. So was the education route not really taken in terms of, you know, the government's fight against VD? Unfortunately not. Um, education, informing people uh, about how to have sex safely was um, perceived to be um, licensing sex outside of marriage, which is the only um, context, at least in that time, that you would need to practice safe sex. If you have um, been abstinent before marriage and so is your partner, then there's no chance of VD coming into the picture at all, theoretically. Um, but as we know, and especially in the case of men, especially in the case of men away at war, um, sowing one's wild oats and living for the moment was uh, certainly a thing. So, uh, yeah, there were some uh, like 16,000 soldiers were estimated to have contracted a VD during the First World War. Um, these were somewhat loose estimates, but it, they were in the thousands. So um, it was definitely recognised to be a problem. Etty Rout was over there promoting um, information and education. She was out um, in Paris on the train stations, handing out condoms to New Zealand and Australian soldiers and explaining to them which brothels were safest to go to because of um, hygienic practices. But it wasn't uh, until that very late in the First World War um, that the New Zealand Defence Force actually adopted her measures, uh, which just goes to show, even though there was um, a minor health crisis happening in the military, uh, the, the sheer reluctance to do something about it beyond telling the men not to go to brothels. Yeah. Uh, it was, it, it was, yeah. A lot of friction there, certainly. <laughs> a lot of friction. Um, now, these men obviously came back from the war. A lot of these men, and, and no doubt a lot of VD came with them. So what was the government like post-World War One, and in that period between World War One and World War Two, when it came to VD? Did, did their ideas change a little bit? Because obviously these men, a lot of these men probably weren't married at the time, so therefore they, um, you know, were going to be looking and going into marriage, potentially having venereal disease. Certainly. Um, so it was a very kind of ambivalent uh, time, the interwar period, when we look at sex education. There were some measures introduced to combat VD because, as you say, it did make its way into New Zealand. Like at Olympic, um, lawmakers had to do something about it. So um, VD clinics in New Zealand were set up um, after the war. And not only ex-soldiers, but their current or future wives were presenting at these clinics as well. VD, as you know, the education wasn't great, so it wasn't easy to detect or notice. You know, rashes could be mistaken for allergies and what have you. So uh, quite often... Um, there were, there were high numbers of women presenting at these clinics before the Second World War and after it as well. Unfortunately, the government's perspective on it um, was still very much a moral one. There was an inquiry held in 1923, government inquiry into venereal disease, uh, which essentially put the blame on uh, quote unquote loose women rather than ex-soldiers. So women who had been sleeping around while the boys were away um, were more of a target for you know vitriol than the soldiers that had um, contracted and spread disease at home. So there were some, some preventative measures available, uh, but still not uh, much education at yeah. all. Yeah, and now we're in the age of uh, antibiotics as well. Um, Fleming having discovered penicillin, uh, no doubt uh, that was used widespreadly. <laughs> Truly, that was a... 
an absolutely uh, revolutionary measure. So treating especially gonorrhea and syphilis, a huge boon. Um, that was the first time that it could decisively be treated. The treatments available prior to penicillin sound very painful and intrusive. Uh, uh, okay. ure urethral irrigation uh, is a phrase I don't really want to ponder too long. Doesn't sound like a great time, but yeah, so um, <laughs> penicillin kind of cleared things up uh, for, for a good while. Um, nonetheless, you know, we still had still had herpes and chlamydia and um, other hepatitis, for example. Yeah. They were just kind of hanging around. So while there weren't really effective treatments available for them, they weren't life-threatening. And given the culture of shame and secrecy surrounding sexual health matters, people just coped and kept it a secret. And as a consequence of that, ended up infecting more people who in turn uh, kept it to themselves. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle um, prior to the advent of HIV AIDS. Mm. Well, I mean, hepatitis, some forms of hepatitis can be a bit deadly. Uh, and, mm -hmm. Or you could at least live a very horrible life. Uh, oh, yeah, and certainly syphilis as well. And, uh, yes, that's right, especially in those days. Mm. Um, right, so we get up to World War Two now. Uh, and, mm. of course, at the end of World War One, the government started to take this seriously. Now we're sending young men off to war once again. In this time, were they prepared? They were prepared a little bit, certainly. Um, so in between the wars... Uh, the New Zealand Defence Force settled on, you know, the idea that providing preventative measures, prophylactics as they called them, essentially condoms and powders and um, lubricants and what have you, was a sound measure for preventing venereal disease. So as embarrassing as they might have found it, all soldiers in the Second World War were provided with um, kits to enable them to, you know, practice intimacy uh, in a safe way. During that time as well, um, the same was not done for women, you see. So the women on the home front were just kind of getting on with business and doing war work. Outside of the sexual temptations that might be had with having husbands and boyfriends away at war, uh, 100,000 Americans were stationed in New Zealand yes. for the last two years of the war, the, the Pacific phase. And uh, there were a lot of fears that um, American servicemen would be infecting local women, which who in turn would infect local men. Interestingly, under 1941 regulations, the government employed the first official contact traces. So people wow. who would look into the partners of an infected person once they'd been identified and could even compel them to be tested and treated under those regulations. So uh, some, some echoes to our present day. Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right, so I mean, post-war, you know, post-war war two, it's 1945, 15 years Oh, well, a little, more than 15 years, but we're heading up to the 60s in the summer, summer of love, sexual revolution. Mm -hmm. the, you know, so our ideas around sex are changing now, right? And so our ideas around safe sex changing as well? To a degree. Um, certainly, uh, the general public's ideas about sex were changing. Um, it's debatable how radical or, like, revolutionary those changes in sexual behaviour and morality were, but people certainly did start looking at sex very differently to um, how it had been viewed for the previous 100, 200 years as more of a matter of pleasure and personal choice and um, personal freedom as well. So we have all these influences, especially coming from America. You know, we've got pop music and we've got um, rock and roll and uh, Hollywood movies. Certainly behaviours, especially among the young, were changing, but the government continue to drag its feet, unfortunately. As late as 1965, the Department of Health was 
advising venereal disease doctors or venereologists, as they were called, um, not mm. to use words like condom or sheath in press releases. So these these terms and um, the activities they implied were still very prescribed from an official perspective, although people were perhaps behaving a little differently in their own bedrooms. It was still unlawful, by the way, until 1990 to give contraceptive information and contraceptive devices to people under 16 years of age. That's madness. Well, I mean, we had a, a rather robust rate of teen pregnancy, especially during the 70s and 80s, which perhaps fueled a, a little bit of a change in attitude, as well as the, uh, the BPD, for example, um, yeah. the domestic, domestic purposes benefit to kind of support single mothers, but allowing them to have safe sex and prevent pregnancy altogether still off the pale, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, you know, are we still looking at through it in these years uh, through a sexist lens as well? Is it still loose woman being the issue? Unfortunately so, uh, especially with younger people. Um, the person who bore the most visible signs or, you know, indicators of premarital sex or immoral behaviour, the person who was almost universally left holding the baby after behaviour like that had been had been practiced was the the single mother unless there was a, a shotgun wedding and a supportive family a single mum was the uh kind of picture of sexual immorality that is until the aids crisis when um the view the focus turned more towards the queer community and especially men yeah that's right because uh, in 1981 um, the first clinically reported cases of AIDS uh, in the US um, were described. They were the first clinical. I mean, I think it had been around for a couple of years before that. Mm. And then that quickly moved into Aotearoa. Um, and this takes us back to Eti Route a bit because um, under her name, the I think the first fully standalone AIDS clinic in Aotearoa uh, was opened in Christchurch in <coughs> 1986 but uh, there were things happening a little bit before that as well um, with the queer community um, really getting uh, behind education uh, in terms of safe sex um, off the off the back of the discovery of AIDS. Certainly um, education and uh, visibility as well if we think back homosexuality only male homosexuality was still a criminal offence until 1986 so there was about a five-year dearth between the arrival of the discovery of AIDS and its arrival in New Zealand not long after. And um, the legalization of homosexuality prior to that, there were very well-founded concerns that homosexual men who contracted AIDS would not go and get tested, would not go and consult their doctors and disclose the fact that they were homosexual because it was illegal. Yeah. Um, so. Interestingly, although, of course, um, the AIDS crisis directed a lot of vitriol towards the queer community and especially towards queer men, um, activists have described a sense of momentum and progress being lost because papers were running extremely inflammatory headlines about yeah. the gay disease and what have you. So it certainly did uh, set work back and you know rights back uh, a good deal. But it also um, ended up being an interesting boon for the movement to legalise homosexuality because these arguments um, made a lot more sense in the context of preventing a health crisis that uh, if homosexuality remained illegal, people would not get tested, people would not get treated and the spread would continue. Yeah, it was a lot of misinformation and, and outright lies 
about HIV AIDS, right? And, and the religious rights moral crusade really, really pushed a lot of those lies because it was seen as the queer disease. You know, a lot of people thought if you were straight, you couldn't get mm-hmm. it. You know, um, which yes, which is yes. which, which is um, you know obviously completely and utterly wrong and completely and utterly disgusting. Yeah. But it's also with that information misinformation out there, you've um, the real danger of people contracting this disease through through straight sex, uh, through drug use, you know, and the like. Yes. Certainly. Um, it was a kind of another uh, unfortunate element in the timing of AIDS' arrival, although it did uh, bring, you know, uh, bolster arguments to decriminalise homosexuality and to normalise homosexuality so folks could take care of their health better. There was a bit of a kind of what I call an unholy alliance between um, conservative organisations and forces in New Zealand who were opposing the Homosexual Law Reform Bill. They actually brought over pundits and um, uh, I suppose you'd call them organisers or media agents, folks from America, um, from the evangelical right, who had been kind of carrying on these campaigns against liberalisation and sexual progressivism in America. They brought their rhetoric and their campaigning strategies, especially with regard to the media and publicity and rhetoric, um, to New Zealand. And so that was um, a huge driving force behind the opposition to, um, well, to queer people's very existence, but also to the decriminalisation um, the idea to organize a nationwide petition was coined by these uh, American influencers and uh, it, it really showed, you know, a big nationalism, um, the national anthem being played outside Parliament while a petition with 30,000... The Nuremberg rally. Yes, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, ironically, um, you know, the peti- that they, it was claimed that that was New Zealand's largest petition. I would argue the suffrage petition was, in fact, uh, the largest. But yes. the numbers were recently trumped by uh, the Greens' online petition to ban conversion therapy. We got to, what, 150,000? Amazing. Amazing. It does show how times have uh, have changed, but yeah, truly, um, that the moral uh, reading of AIDS and of sexuality as a whole became truly unsustainable during the 80s because, I mean, as we talked about, as said before, like um, a lot of the other venereal diseases did cause death and um, social harm, but uh, not on such a scale and not with um, such speed. Uh, mm-hmm. The life expectation once a diagnosis was had for AIDS at that time was around a year. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was truly brutal and um, so catching and so uh, a real uh, moral reframing of sexuality and especially of safe sex uh, was had in the wake of that. So um, you know it's it's the mid eighties. It's the fourth Labour government. So it's a uh, well you turn into a very libertarian government, but yeah, it was seen to be quite liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, so how was the government's reaction to the AIDS HIV crisis? Aside from uh, supporting the decriminalisation of homosexuality, which was which was a, a sound thing and very much at the forefront, that if we want to check the tide of AIDS, we need to allow queer people to come out into the community and get help um, and become informed. There was a definite liberalisation of education, especially when it concerned contraceptives. Um, the first television advertisement in 1986 likened not using a condom to not using a parachute. And if we think that, uh, what, 30 years prior, the word condom wasn't even allowed in a press release, that's a fairly significant turnaround. And so outside of that, there was um, more support uh, given 
the New Zealand AIDS Foundation, for example, was allowed to operate openly and provide treatment and what have you. So campaigns were allowed to come about and were given support. And these campaigns were quite distinct to the abstinence-only measures of the past. Um, they focused on prevention through safe sex rather than abstinence, essentially. Yeah. And they saw this really interesting thing. I mean, we had um, we had some very strict uh, measure, measures surrounding censorship and obscenity, uh, which had to be ignored when it came to promoting safe sex. So we uh, saw ads sexualizing the use of condoms, for example. Yeah. Something which, again, would have been unthinkable yeah. 20 or 30 Amazing. years prior, even 10 years prior. Yeah. Yeah. So um, eventually they fell into line. So it was the, prior to the AIDS Foundation, it was the AIDS Support Network, and they're the ones that sent a submission into the North Canterbury Hospital Board about opening an independent clinic, and that clinic, of course, uh, well, it first was um, just made part of the hospital's SCI clinic, and then the independent clinic, the Etty Route Centre, was opened in 1988, uh, which is still open now, of course, which is great. Um, well, which we didn't need, need for it. And then in 1988, there was also, uh, in, in that same year that it was open, needle exchanges were opened in Aotearoa. So the government, you know, had a, at least had an understanding on how the disease spread. And, um, well, at that stage, you know, they weren't just pointing the finger like the moral majority were at uh, homosexuality. Um, you know, they, they had an understanding. And so they were educated, at least. So they were, were they helping... The AIDS support network who were working like crazy with pamphlets and flyers and all the things to get an education out there to, um, you know, about safe sex and whatnot, not just for, for the queer community, but the community as a whole. So, um, you know, you talked about the ads on the TV about condom promotion. Um, were they doing other any other spots uh, like that as well? Well, if they're doing AIDS, <laughs> condoms, they were. Um, right, um, and I guess one of the big things in Aotearoa and something I definitely remember from my childhood. It was Eve Van Grafthuis, um and, you know, changing the face of AIDS in New Zealand. She developed AIDS through a blood transfusion after being born prematurely, uh, and she was rejected from a native Australia, being asked to wear a plastic mask uh, to go to school, but still a lot of parents uh, wouldn't let their kids go to school with poor Eve. Um, so, and, you know, and she was, her and her family were told to leave town, so they did, and they moved to Hastings uh, in, in, the, in the late 80s, uh, where she was embraced. Um, by the community, embraced by the nation. I remember her being on the Homes program, which is our biggest current affairs show at the time. You know, and she really helped to change the idea of what AIDS was. Truly, and um, what what AIDS sufferers uh, were guilty of, so to yeah. speak. You know, there was uh, this notion of the, the frightening, infectious homosexual man who was going to prey on um, whomever. And uh, those, those moral readings, those gendered and um, sexualized readings, just did not apply to her case at all. And um, she was completely blameless. And so both the, the persecution that she suffered and um, her own suffering um, really helped to kind of turn public opinion and I mean, certainly, you know, she was about the furthest thing you could get from a gay man. And so this made AIDS uh, more of a uh, general threat than something exclusive to the queer community um, that some people were, uh, you know, especially like, horrible conservatives were, were glad that it was, you know, part felt like it was a um, God's judgment against um, sexual proclivity and what have you. So, uh, again, those uh, arguments were rapidly losing traction as uh, folks like her came to the surface mm -hmm. yeah now we've seen how 
um, AIDS, then the fight against HIV AIDS helped in the fight um, for the Homosexual Law Reform Act in 1986. Mm -hmm. um, but what role did it, have, did it play in the decriminalisation of sex work in Aotearoa? Well, quite a large one, it so happens. So the um, sex workers in New Zealand were... I mean, if, you, if you're trying to think about a group more marginalised and uh, more discriminated against than the queer community, it would certainly be sex workers. Um, mm -hmm. And with a much longer history of being criminalised, uh, you know, 1869. I mean, certainly uh, queer men were, you know, subject to criminal penalties um, at that time as well. But uh, prostitutes or sex workers were the more visible symbol of sexual degeneracy. 19th century people didn't necessarily know that homosexuality existed, but they most certainly knew about um, sex work because it was created as this uh, kind of opposition to um, healthy married sexuality. This was this diseased, immoral, uh, consumer-driven sexuality as it was framed at the time. So um, in terms of uh, organizing and um, you know, putting forward a collective voice. Uh, they, they were late in the game, um, but certainly made a, a strong impression. So the New Zealand uh, Prostitutes Collective formed in the mid 80s, I believe, and were actually, and this goes to show um, how quickly and decisively the government kind of switched around on this issue. The Department of Health started funding their work in 1988. So that was two years after homosexuality is decriminalised and, um, you know, the same decade that AIDS has arrived. But by this stage, the Department of Health, the wider community, we're recognising that decriminalisation and um, more openness concerning sexuality, especially the safe versions, um, was crucial to preventing the spread of this disease. Um, the argument was that if uh, AIDS was to be kept out of the um, community and uh, out of sex workers communities especially um, then they needed to be brought out of the darkness and given the same protections and rights as other New Zealand workers were given yeah. and this this followed through um, it took a good while but the fact that um, the prostitutes collective was receiving funding from the Department of Health in the 80s is supposed to show um, so they were yeah. working to promote AIDS prevention among their own communities and um, a very a very diverse group of people as well um, at this stage. Uh, prostitute didn't just mean uh, women. It could mean gay men, it could mean transgender folk, or it could also mean uh, folk who cross-dressed in order to do their sex work. You know, the more, the more elaborate stuff too. So, and of all levels of education, many different backgrounds of class and ethnicity too. So um, these folk organized as well. And certainly by that stage, um, the notion that whatever one might think of uh, what folk do, do in their, the privacy of their bedrooms or what have you, um, that a health crisis and averting that health crisis was certainly the most important thing and yeah. decriminalisation followed from that. Yeah, fantastic, amazing. So I remember it well, such a great day. You know, it's amazing. And, and you know, we can look all the way back to Etty Rout, right? You we know. truly can. I mean... She was the first public voice, uh, really, arguing to for uh, for people to conceive of and view um, venereal disease not as a moral issue but as a medical issue. That um, rather than being kind of stigmatised and uh, criminalised, should mm -hmm. be treated with whatever preventative measures were available. Yeah. Uh, so of course, very, very. Um, 
very appropriate that an AIDS clinic was named after her. Interestingly, um, the New Zealand AIDS Foundation kind of, you know, um, had to had to argue a little bit with the North Canterbury Hospital Board. Yes. Um, they opposed to a clinic being named after a person. They didn't like that. Then they opposed the need for a clinic at all. They said, well, we've got VD services already. Um, the New Zealand AIDS Foundation had to argue, well, if we remember the first clinics happening in the interwar era and thereafter, that they were, most, they were mostly for heterosexual people. Of course. Who had been infected by partners who had, um, prior to their marriage or during their marriage, uh, practiced unsafe sex or, you know, had a bit of a slip up. So um, anonymity and a low-key environment, a queer-friendly environment um, and counselling, those were um, things that were unique to the Etty Route Clinic and I think measures that she would have certainly approved of. Yeah, and you know, there's still that fear of persecution and prosecution as well. Um, that hangs over hangs over the, your head. So, uh, mm-hmm. of course, to ha- have that space um, is is just incredible, especially in very Anglo Christchurch. <laughs> Truly, well, I mean, I, I believe that that was um, Etty's kind of home base where she uh, started doing her work, and yeah. you know, before she became persona non grata. So, yeah, very, very appropriate. Um, a, a rather good ending to Etty's story, I think. I mean, it would be a shame to leave it. Um, after her death, her ideas didn't carry on concretely, but the spirit of her work mm-hmm. uh, was certainly far, far um, lived a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, and thank God that her um, ideas around eugenics certainly didn't carry on. Is it about? Truly. Fantastic. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Great chat. Thank you, Jamie. It's been great. Yeah, it's been really good. As um, always. And we'll be back next week uh, in our old spot. Uh, until then, kakite. Have yourself a wonderful day in the big smoke of Auckland. And uh, we'll talk oh, soon. Oh, I surely will. Yeah. <laughs> Kia ora. Cheers. Thanks for listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.